Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Kashmir carries the burden of being known as one of the world's biggest flashpoints. If a novel, TV show, movie, or video game wants an easy international crisis, there's a good chance Kashmir will be the crisis of choice. But while Kashmir is globally known, few understand the roots of the conflict, what the people that live in Kashmir actually think. For those that are interested, Professor Samantha Bose's Kashmir at the Crossroads Inside a 21st Century Conflict, published by Yale University Press in early December, walks readers through the origins, developments, and potential future of the situation in Jammu and Kashmir, going right to the present day with the Modi administration's turning of the state into two union territories. Professor Bose is one of the world's foremost experts on the Kashmir conflict. He is the author of seven previous books, including Contested Lands, Israel-Palestine, Kashmir, Bosnia, Cyprus, and Sri Lanka, and Secular States, Religious Politics, India, Turkey, and the Future of Secularism. Today, we'll run through the history of Kashmir, and how we should think about recent developments in this part of the world. So, Sumatra, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I want to start by setting the scene, as it were. I think, as I know in my intro, people know about Kashmir. They know it's a place where um, there's long-running tensions, potential for conflict, but people probably don't actually know what that part of the world is like. So I wanted to kind of ask in big picture terms, what's it like to be in Kashmir, to live in Kashmir? What's the climate, the geography? Um, what sorts of people live there? Um, just to kind of set the scene for our listeners who've never had the chance to go. Uh, well, Nicholas, first of all, it's great to be here. Um, I've been to Kashmir uh, very numerous times, as you can imagine. And uh, although it's a permanent war zone, uh, I have, in a way, um, enjoyed it every time, uh, getting to know the culture and the people, especially. Um, well, Kashmir is um, is a fairly sprawling region um, at the northern end of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, it's wedged between India, Pakistan, China, and uh, even in one northwestern corner, uh, with Afghanistan, there's a you know a short border between Pakistani-administered uh, Kashmir and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it's a mix of sub-Himalayan, Himalayan, and high Himalayan land, um, and most of the terrain is uh, either hilly or outrightly mountainous. Uh, in fact, there are large parts of uh, the Kashmir region. Uh, which are high-altitude deserts. For example, um, the sub-region called Ladakh, uh, which is uh, wedged between um, uh, uh, between the Kashmir Valley and uh, China's Tibet and Xinjiang provinces, 
um, and the twin regions or the twin sub-regions of Gilgit-Baltistan, uh, which are under Pakistani administration, just south of Xinjiang and north of Ladakh. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, the climate is you know, more or less what you would expect from a, a Himalayan region. It gets bitterly cold in the winters. Um, right now, um, as we record this interview at the end of December, um, the Kashmir Valley, which is a politically very sensitive sub-region of about 8 uh, million people, is going through the coldest phase of its long winter. It's a 40-day period between late December and end January or early February, which is known locally as Chillai Kalan. Um, but the Kashmir Valley and indeed um, some of the other sub-regions um, of Kashmir are known for their stunning natural beauty. And uh, uh, some people say that had it not been for its uh, sorry history of being a disputed territory over the last 74 years, it could easily have been uh, the Switzerland of uh, Asia. Um, just one you know, final uh, point to make um, is that Kashmir is politically divided. Uh, it has been divided since the end of the first India-Pakistan war over Kashmir in the late 1940s between uh, a much larger and more populous uh, Indian-administered uh, Kashmir and uh, a smaller and less populous Pakistani-administered Kashmir. The entire region in its totality contains about 20 million people, 14 million of whom uh, live in Indian-administered Kashmir and about 6 million in Pakistani-administered Kashmir. It's good that you mentioned the Indo-Pakistani War of 1947 because that leads into my next question, which is where does the where does the conflict over Kashmir come from? What are the what are the roots of that conflict kind of immediately after um, independence? Well, um, when the British left the Indian subcontinent in uh, 1947. Um, Almost half of the land area of British uh, of of, uh, of of pre-partition India uh, was not under direct British administration. Um, about fifty-five percent of the land area was, in fact, you know, so-called British India under direct, you know, British authority and administration. But about 45% of the land area of the whole subcontinent prior to um, 1947 um, was covered by a patchwork mosaic of somewhere between 500 and 600 so-called princely states. These were principalities ranging in size and population from really tiny to quite sizable, um, whose Indian rulers had accepted um, what was known as the paramountcy of British power, um, but uh, who ran their so-called you know, states, more like fiefdoms and principalities, uh, in the manner in which they chose. Now, Kashmir, or Jammu and Kashmir, to give it its full name, 
was one of the largest and most populous of these 500 to 600 princely states. Um, it had come into being in the mid-19th century and had been in existence for just over 100 years uh, when the moment of 1947 arrived in the subcontinent. Um, now, when the British withdrawal from the subcontinent became imminent, the question obviously arose, what would happen to these 500 to 600 um, so-called princely states, which covered almost half the land area of the subcontinent? And the short answer was that um, the princely rulers... Um, needed to decide in a forthwith uh, whether to join India or Pakistan, and that their third option of uh, declaring themselves as independent entities was purely notional. Now, this simple common sense formula did work out in uh, the case of the vast majority of the princely states, you know, barring you know just a, just a few. Uh, Mountbatten, the last. British Viceroy advised the princely rulers that they should use uh, two criteria in making their decision. First, uh, whether their principality was territorially embedded in or contiguous to India or Pakistan, and second, the wishes of their population of subjects. Um, unfortunately, this simple common sense formula did not yield. Uh, a clear answer in the case of Jammu and Kashmir, which was territorially contiguous to both India and Pakistan, though uh, more extensively to Pakistan than to India, and whose population, the ruler was a Hindu autocrat, but uh, the population was largely more than three-quarters Muslim, uh, whose population was not clearly aligned you know, with, um, with either camp, you know, the, either the India... Uh, camp or the Pakistan camp. Indeed, the single largest number uh, probably preferred um, or would have preferred to become an independent state, but that was a notional possibility, you know, more or less at the time. Um, okay, so what are the bases of the Indian and Pakistani claims to Kashmir? Um, both are ideologically driven claims. Um, since the appearance of the uh, term Pakistan, the land of the pious, uh, around you know, 1933, Kashmir had been an integral part of the idea of Pakistan, the imagined Pakistan. Um, indeed, you know, the P in Pakistan stood for Punjab, uh, the K for Kashmir, the S for Sindh, and the Tan for Baluchistan. So, in a Muslim majority regions in the northwestern part of the subcontinent. Um, a decade and a half later, when Pakistan became a reality, the leaders of Pakistan naturally expected that Kashmir, uh, being territorially contiguous to their new country and with a Muslim-majority population, would become part of Pakistan. But as I just outlined, things were not that simple. Uh, India, on the other hand, did not have a clearly articulated ideological claim to Pakistan until India ended up with the greater part of the territory and the much greater part, uh, well over two-thirds of the population of the contested territory after the first India-Pakistan war, 
which ended formally in January 1949. It was fought over Kashmir, over possession and ownership of Kashmir. And following that, an Indian official kind of ideological stance emerged that Kashmir belonged rightfully and indeed naturally with India because uh, Kashmiris in particular, the Kashmiri Muslims of the of the Kashmir Valley were naturally tolerant and secular in their orientation, so they belonged better in India than in Pakistan. So I want to, so that's obviously the origins of, of the dispute. Um, and then the dispute kind of continues on for, un, until the present day. Um, but I note in your book that um, you kind of have one chapter on uh, the dispute up to 1990, and then you have two, you have that of multiple chapters, everything after 1990. Why do you kind of see that kind of transition point in 1990 between um, the conflict in Kashmir uh, before and after that specific year? Uh, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, my book follows a simple, you know, chronological uh, narrative. Um, and uh, the first, you know, substantive chapter is indeed about the period 1947 to 1989, and of course, uh, that chapter has information filled in from the pre-47 period, including you know centuries past, um, essential to understand uh, the way the conflict unfolded in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, in response to your question, Nicholas, um, why I consider 1989-1990 a watershed is um, well, um, quite simple. Um, until 1989-90, Kashmir, which, as I mentioned already, um, has been politically divided um, between um, Indian and Pakistani jurisdictions since uh, 1949, was repeatedly fought over uh, between the states, the sovereign states of India and Pakistan and their militaries. So, uh, there was the first you know, India-Pakistan war over uh, Kashmir uh, in 1947-1948. There was a second uh, India-Pakistan war, a full-fledged one, um, you know, across the entire India-Pakistan border, but triggered by the simmering and festering Kashmir dispute in 1965. Um, there was, of course, a third India-Pakistan war just six years later in 1971, that war was triggered by the terminal crisis of Pakistan's unity and the emergence of uh, Bangladesh as a sovereign state uh, with Indian support out of the former East Pakistan. But that war, too, um, saw fighting on the Kashmir front between Indian and Pakistani forces. Um, so until the end of the 1980s, um, Kashmir was uh, widely viewed as uh, this territorial dispute between India and Pakistan, uh, each with its respective, you know, ideologically based claim to uh, possession of the territory. But what happened um, right at the end of the 1980s, and particularly in the early 1990s, starting in 1990 itself, that is that a homegrown popular uprising and insurgency. The insurgency was, of course, materially you know, backed by Pakistan. Um, that a homegrown popular uprising and insurgency against Indian authority broke out in Indian-administered Kashmir. 
especially in the epicenter of the conflict, um, the fairly thickly populated Kashmir Valley sub-region. Um, and that popular uprising you know, lost its uh, traction after a few years, but the insurgency um, raged on for another decade and a half until the mid-2000s and cost the lives of tens of thousands of people, local civilians, uh, insurgents, um, as well as, obviously, uh, army, paramilitary, and police personnel of the Indian security forces. And in the meantime, there was another limited war over Kashmir, fought on a barren, very mountainous stretch of the line of control in the western part of the Ladakh region between the Indian and Pakistani forces in 1999. Uh, basically, the Kashmir conflict was transformed, you know, starting in 1990. It could no longer be regarded as simply a territorial dispute between uh, two countries, but um, in a very tragic and violent way, uh, the inhabitants of the contested territory came into the conflict. And so what do you think sparked that shift? I mean, what do you think changed in Kashmir that, that, that drove the creation of this insurgency? As in what turned it from a, as you know, and kind of an, an interstate conflict into one that was a much more domestic conflict in India? That's a good question. Um, the in insurgency that fled uh, from 1990 uh, was a long time coming. It had been in the making for four decades. And the short answer to your question uh, is that um, Indian administered Kashmir was governed as a very repressive police state under Indian authority for four decades, um, starting in the early 1950s, um, until the population, particularly the an angry uh, younger generation, uh, could not or would not take it anymore, and resorted to armed struggle, uh, of course with Pakistan's you know, eager, eagerly extended support, uh, to achieve what they regarded as their right to self-determination, uh, to decide their political future, whether to remain in India, to join with Pakistan, or become an independent state. Um, uh, I won't go into the details of the repressive you know, practices over four decades in Indian-administered Kashmir. Um, they're there in my book, of course. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, you know, this was the routine reality um, for two or three generations that grew up uh, in the Kashmir Valley uh, between the 1950s and the late 1980s. Uh, to live in a very repressive police state, uh, completely at odds with um, India's image as a as a democracy, uh, to live in a very repressive police state ruled by a panoply of uh, draconian laws. Uh, of course, uh, you know that's the basic reason. But uh, remember that the end of the 1980s were um, a turbulent time, you know, globally. Um, the bipolar world came to an end uh, with the unraveling and demise of the Soviet Union, and part of that was the 
Soviet uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, which, of course, is in Kashmir's immediate neighborhood um, in 1989. Um, there were uh, other developments, you know, the Berlin Wall fell, um, you know, Europe was uh, reunified. Um, the Palestinian Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising, uh, broke out in at the end of 1987 in the occupied uh, territories and, you know, raged on until the early 1990s. Um, and so um, Kashmiris, you know, felt emboldened by these developments. Um, you know, they were chafing under repressive, you know, Indian uh, rule. And, um, you know, they felt uh, that if the Berlin Wall could be toppled, uh, why couldn't the line of control uh, dividing, you know, Indian-administered and Pakistani-administered uh, Kashmir? And if um, uh, uh, the Afghan Mujahideen uh, could fight um, a superpower's uh, forces, um, the Soviet forces occupying Afghanistan to a standstill during the decade of the 1980s and then uh, forced them into a humiliating, you know, withdrawal or departure. Of course, you know, the Mujahideen had uh, plentiful American and Pakistani support, as we, as we know, or rather American support uh, funneled through the Pakistanis. Then why couldn't a ragtag band of, uh, of Kashmiri um, insurgents uh, take on the vastly superior Indian forces. I'd like to change tack with this next question a bit. Um, and you'll see why when I ask the question after this one, which is obviously the, the big news from Kashmir recently was the change in its status um, into becoming two union territories. Um, but what was the status of Kashmir in India before that change? Um, what... Did it have more autonomy than other states? Did it have a special status? Um, what was Kashmir in India before the Modi administration's change? Right. Now, this uh, complicated story actually goes back to the beginnings of uh, the conflict in 1947. Uh, in October 1947, the last uh, princely ruler of Kashmir, who was a Hindu, uh, ruling over a largely Muslim population, signed a so-called um, instrument of accession to India, to the Indian Union. Um, a few days later, uh, Lord Mountbatten, the last uh, viceroy, uh, accepted the accession as valid, um, but uh, also said that uh, the, the last ruler's uh, accession uh, should be ratified um, as soon as possible, or at least in due course, uh, through um, a reference to the people, um, namely a, a plebiscite or a, or a sovereignty referendum with uh, two choices, uh, whether the population of uh, Kashmir wanted to join India or Pakistan. Um, this commitment was also picked up by India's first uh, prime minister, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, who indeed was India's prime minister, still the longest serving one, until uh, his death in office in 1964. Uh, and uh, Nehru repeated uh, this uh, so-called pledge about a plebiscite or sovereignty uh, referendum several times um, until about uh, 1952 or so. Um, because the accession was considered as valid 
but not an absolutely final disposition of uh, Kashmir's status. Uh, what was initially intended to be a temporary autonomy provision uh, was inserted into India's constitution. This came to be known as Article 370 or 370 of India's constitution, uh, which limited um, the, the central Indian government's jurisdiction over Kashmir to three categories of subjects. Uh, external defense, the conduct of foreign policy, and currency and essential communications. So Article 370 survived for nearly the next 70 years uh, until it was uh, got rid of by uh, Modi's uh, government uh, in August 2019. But Article 370, this wide-ranging autonomy provision, which became de facto permanent because uh, the plebiscite was, was never held. Um, Article 370 survived for 70 years uh, in an increasingly hollowed out and irrelevant form. Uh, because, you know, starting in about 1954, um, the central Indian government, you know, headed by the first Prime Minister Nehru, embarked on um, a purposeful course of centralization and of integrating Kashmir into the Indian Union uh, as a normal state of the Union rather than a special state uh, enjoying special status and privileges and uh, a special degree of autonomy. So the autonomy survived on paper in the Indian Constitution, but it was whittled away in practice until by, in fact, as early as 1965, uh, Article 370 was a hollowed out shell and after that time, um, Jammu and Kashmir, the, the state of the Indian Union, which comprises the larger part of the disputed territory, um, became really more or, more or less like any other state of the Indian Union, um, with a few rather you know, symbolic tokens of autonomy left. Um, for example, a state flag, a Jammu and Kashmir state flag, uh, a Jammu and Kashmir state constitution that was really not much more than a sheaf of paper um, because the Indian constitution of 1950 you know, took precedence uh, and uh, a penal code uh, inherited from the princely state uh, period. So when the Modi government uh, got rid of Article 370 in August, 19, uh, August uh, 2019, um, it wasn't really getting rid of um, anything substantive. It was getting rid of the, of the final symbolic tokens of uh, Kashmir's uh, autonomy. Uh, however, the Modi government did two other things which were much uh, more substantive. Uh, first of all, um, the, another provision of the Indian constitution called Article 35A was also disposed of. And Article 35A um, gave um, the, the, the indigenous population, um, so the so-called permanent residents of Jammu and Kashmir, of Indian uh, Jammu and Kashmir, with its three regions, the Kashmir Valley, the Jammu region, and Ladakh, um, some special privileges, priority, and protection 
uh, in land and property ownership and in employment, access to jobs, you know, particularly government jobs, which are the main source of employment in the region for uh, many decades. Now, that protection was done away with at the same time, uh, which meant that the entire population of uh, Indian uh, Jammu and Kashmir in all three regions, the Kashmir Valley, the Jammu region, and Ladakh, lost uh, their protected uh, livelihoods and uh, land ownership. And of course, the third thing that the Modi government did was even more uh, drastic. Uh, it completely abolished uh, Indian, the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir, downgraded it to a union territory um, under the direct rule of New Delhi, uh, and moreover, uh, carved up you know, Jammu and Kashmir or dismembered Jammu and Kashmir by detaching uh, the vast but thinly populated Ladakh region from the rest of the abolished state. So essentially, two union territories under the direct rule of New Delhi came into being, formally from October 2019. Uh, one is the union territory of Jammu and Kashmir, which contains the two more populous regions, the Kashmir Valley and the Jammu region, and um, the, the other region of the liquidated state, Ladakh, became a separate union territory. That's a good segue to my next question, actually, which is, um, which, is which is about Ladakh, which is seems to be kind of both part of yet not part of the conversation about Kashmir. Um, and so what makes Ladakh different and what makes Ladakh separate, at least in part, in a, of our conversation of about Kashmir? Ladakh is a is a fascinating place to visit. Uh, its uh, its landscape is uh, somewhat like uh, you know on the moon. It's a vast high altitude um, desert. Um, I've been there a number of times, including at this time of the year, uh, at the peak of winter, and uh, I've never been to uh, a colder place uh, in my experience, at least. Um, well, uh, first of all. Uh, Ladakh, unlike the other two regions of Indian administered Kashmir, the Kashmir Valley, which is about 8 million people, and the Jammu region, which has over 6 million people, Ladakh, because it is a high-altitude desert uh, in um, the uh, upper Himalayas, um, is very thinly populated. It has uh, only about 300,000 people in all. But it occupies a strategic location because it is uh, wedged between the Kashmir Valley to the west, um, um, you know, certain um, states of India uh, to its south, uh, a state called Himachal Pradesh in particular, um, China's uh, uh, Tibet to uh, the east of Ladakh, um, Pakistan's, you know, Gilgit-Baltistan, uh, the Gilgit-Baltistan, you know, area of Pakistan-administered Kashmir uh, to the north, and also to the north, uh, China's Xinjiang province. So it's an incredibly you know, strategic location in geographical um, terms. Uh, that gives it uh, a degree of importance, um, despite it being a very sparsely populated, high-altitude um, desert. Um, the, I should mention that there's a clear difference between Western Ladakh and Eastern Ladakh. 
Uh, Western Ladakh, which is close to the Kashmir Valley, is predominantly inhabited by uh, Shia Muslims, uh, who are of Tibetan stock, uh, but uh, people of Tibetan stock who over time converted to Shia Islam. So it's a bit like uh, little Iran. There's a very strong Iranian you know, cultural uh, influence uh, with uh, uh, portraits of, uh, of Khomeini you know, hanging, hanging uh, everywhere and so on. And there's eastern Ladakh, which is predominantly populated by Tibetan Buddhists and which abuts um, the line of actual control as the de facto border is known between um, Indian control and China's Tibet. Um, This is different from the LOC or the line of control uh, which divides Indian administered Kashmir from Pakistani administered Kashmir. That's the western border of the contested territory. The line of actual control or the LAC uh, is uh, the eastern border of the contested territory. It's a de facto border between uh, India and China. Um, and it's a very sensitive and since last year, uh, 2020, a very volatile border because uh, the India-China border has never been settled um, in its uh, 4,000 um, uh, a kilometer odd you know, trajectory. And there are two particular areas of disagreement. One is at the eastern end of the Himalayas, and the other is at the western end of the Himalayas, uh, where Ladakh, which is under Indian authority, meets um, Tibet and Xinjiang, which, of course, are provinces of China. And speaking of China, um, again, another great subject to my next question, has... Has China and I think it's you know its its rise, its increased power, its increased stature, has that changed the way that India, well India and Pakistan, I guess that both countries now think about Kashmir now that China is a much more prominent country, a much more a much stronger country, um, and the tensions between China and India seem much more visible now than they might have been even a decade ago. Yes, absolutely. Um, I make the point in the book that uh, the People's Republic of China has always lurked in the background of the India-Pakistan conflict over Kashmir. Um, China and India uh, fought a brief but bitter border war uh, because of their frontier dispute, which, as I just mentioned, <laughs> remains unresolved, you know, six decades later. Uh, we are almost in 2022 now. Um, and uh, the Indians uh, suffered a heavy defeat in that uh, war in October, November 1962. Uh, the fighting was heaviest uh, at the eastern end of the Himalayas and at the western end. Uh, of the unsettled uh, border, which is where Ladakh meets um, Tibet, uh, essentially, and also a a high-altitude plateau called Aksai Chin, which India claims, but which has been under the control of China since the early 1950s. Um, Following the 1962 war, 
the Sino-Indian relationship you know, collapsed almost completely and did not begin to recover until the 1980s. And there was further progress on normalizing the relationship, but uh, the border dispute remained you know, unresolved uh, in the 1990s and beyond. Uh, in tandem with the collapse of the Sino-Indian relationship, Pakistan and China started building uh, a close alliance from the early 1960s onwards, uh, particularly in the military domain. So, for example, uh, it's widely accepted that Pakistan's uh, nuclear bomb would not have been possible had it not been for many years of uh, Chinese scientific expertise and assistance. Um, however, China tried to adopt a neutral-sounding posture on the Kashmir dispute between India and Pakistan. So, for example, uh, Deng Xiaoping said uh, in 1980 that the Kashmir dispute was a matter between India and Pakistan. It was for them to resolve. You know, China had no role to play whatsoever and no interest uh, in the dispute. Um, and uh, that, you know, neutral sounding posture endured for the next four decades until 2019 or 2020. So, for example, in the Kargil War, which happened in 1999, you know, something that I already mentioned, the Pakistanis um, looked to China, at least for uh, moral and political and diplomatic support, but received none because uh, China, you know, decided to keep out of this particular escalation of the Kashmir dispute that Pakistan and its army had initiated by launching the Kargil War. Now, all of that has changed in the last uh, two years, and particularly since, particularly since 2020. Uh, the dormant, the unresolved, but dormant um, for over six decades, border dispute between China and India uh, is no longer dormant. Uh, the Ladakh border with Aksai Chin and with Tibet is heavily militarized as we speak, even in the freezing winter that engulfs you know, that part of the world. There are tens of thousands of Chinese PLA soldiers and tens of thousands of Indian army soldiers dug in at uh, forbidding you know, altitudes in the freezing winter. There are uh, very significant uh, uh, air force assets deployed on both sides, you know, which are on alert. And this has been the case since the escalation of the dispute uh, in mid-2020. In June 2020, there was, for the first time in six decades, a major lethal clash uh, between the Chinese and Indian armies, uh, in which at least 20 Indian soldiers and an unknown number of Chinese soldiers, but at least four, as far as we know, uh, perished. Uh, the question is, uh, why um, has China decided to adopt uh, a much more belligerent posture on the eastern border of the Kashmir region after six decades? Uh, there is uh, no easy answer to this. And, um, you know, uh, I don't have access to the thinking of uh, China's top leadership. But, of course, you know, this sort of, um, 
you know, new belligerence fits into the People's Republic's pattern of belligerent behavior towards uh, countries across Asia, um, particularly in the Xi Jinping era. But also, uh, China appears to have been very offended by what the Modi government uh, did uh, in with regard to the Kashmir conflict in 2019, uh, an attempt to um, settle the conflict, um, you know, that's a fantasy, but to settle the conflict by essentially uh, erasing it as a political question and resorting to brute repression and nothing else. So, for example, as early as September of uh, 2019, the Chinese foreign ministry said in a blunt statement that China does not regard the so-called Union Territory, the Indian Union Territory of Ladakh. And between August 2019 and August 2020, China tried to raise the Kashmir dispute in contrast to its aloof behavior in the past, no fewer than three times at the United Nations Security Council. So the point I make in the book is that um, from lurking on the on the sidelines of the conflict or in the backstage of the conflict, China has moved uh, into the actual stage of the Kashmir conflict in the past one to two years. And the regional geopolitics of the conflict has become increasingly trilateral rather than the old bilateral India-Pakistan dispute. It's now an India-Pakistan-China triad, with China and Pakistan, of course, closely allied as ever. So I have one more question, and it's unfortunately a rather thorny one. Um, But what makes the Kashmir conflict so hard to resolve in a manner that India, Pakistan, and the local Kashmiris would find satisfactory? Uh, Well, Nicholas, um, you may regard that as a thorny question, uh, but to me, because I've been... uh, uh, studying this, you know, this vexed conflict for almost three decades, um, the answer is actually fairly easy, and it has two parts. Uh, first of all, let's look at India and Pakistan, the two protagonists in the dispute, uh, each with a, a maximalist claim to uh, possession and ownership of Kashmir. Um, well, um, the Pakistani public has been told, you know, down the generations, that uh, Kashmir naturally and rightfully belongs to uh, Pakistan, um, and um, you know, I I've already explained the basis of that particular you know ideological posture, which has been around you know since the 1930s, you know, before Pakistan came into being as a sovereign country. Um, and, and of course, you know, the Pakistani public and the Pakistani elite, um, the political civilian elite, as well as the military elite, um, always gets uh, very exercised by uh, Indian uh, repression uh, in, um, in Indian-administered Kashmir, which has taken a particularly drastic form um, since uh, August 2019. Of course, their moral outrage is very selective, uh, the Pakistani government and uh, the Pakistani you know, military hierarchy has nothing to say whatsoever about China's treatment of the Uyghurs of uh, Xinjiang, um, but uh, is always you know, extremely you know, incensed about uh, 
Indian zulm or repression in what they call Magbusa or occupied Kashmir, which is the way Indian administered Kashmir is referred to in Pakistan. So um, Pakistanis, most Pakistanis, uh, feel that uh, Kashmir should belong to Pakistan. And, and secondly, that uh, their Muslim um, you know, compatriots in Indian administered Kashmir about 70% of the population of Indian administered Kashmir is Muslim, so that's quite a large majority. They are suffering terribly under Indian rule, and you know something has to be done about that, and so, so on. Uh, on the Indian side, of course, um, there has been this ideological claim to Kashmir as well, which I have explained in response to one of your earlier questions, so I won't um, repeat that. Uh, but now that uh, Hindu nationalism, you know, majoritarian Hindu nationalism has uh, fully come into its own in Indian politics and indeed become India's uh, dominant uh, political force, uh, it's worth mentioning um, at the conclusion of this interview that Hindu nationalism has always had a particularly hardline position regarding Kashmir. Uh, of course, that hardline position didn't really matter for four decades after the conflict's inception, because Hindu nationalism um, kind of, uh, um, you know, lurked on the fringes of Indian politics, you know, until the early 1990s. Until 30 years ago, Hindu nationalism was a fringe movement uh, in Indian politics. But now the situation has changed uh, quite completely. And uh, uh, the, what we have been seeing since 2019, um, which has opened a new phase of the Kashmir conflict, uh, is that um, uh, is an attempt by uh, the government led by Prime Minister Modi and his uh, uh, chief henchman and enforcer, former Interior Minister Amit Shah, to implement um, the... Hindu nationalist vision of a final solution to the Kashmir conflict. Uh, that is by erasing Kashmir as a political question and using you know, draconian means to bring you know, any restiveness among Kashmiris to heal. Um, so that's the situation in which the conflict is poised right now. And of course, if any Indian political party tries to project a more moderate, more humane, and more democratic stance on the Kashmir conflict, uh, the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party, will immediately accuse them of being soft on Pakistan and of being soft on terrorists. So, you know, that's a real problem. So that's about India and Pakistan, um, about Kashmir. And here I refer to the totality of the contested territory, uh, Indian administered Kashmir, um, which has about 14 million people in its three you know, former regions, the Kashmir Valley, 8 million, the Jammu region to its south, about 6 million plus, Ladakh uh, to the east of the valley, about 300,000, and Pakistani administered Kashmir, which has two distinct parts, um, uh, a long sliver of territory known as so-called Azad Free Kashmir in Pakistan, which has about four, four and a half million people, and the sparsely populated High Himalayan, Gilgit, and Baltistan uh, sub-region to its north, 
which has about a million to a million and a half uh, people. Um, these 20 million people uh, essentially have three fundamentally different and incompatible political allegiances and preferences. Probably from what indications are available, uh, including my own you know, field on the ground experiences over the past three decades, uh, the single largest number among these 20 million people um, would ideally like to live in an independent state of Kashmir, uh, covering um, all, ideally all or at least most of the territory of the princely state that existed until 1947. And this pro-independence or independentist segment of the population is very dominant in the Kashmir Valley and also has strong support uh, in Pakistan's you know, so-called Azad Kashmir among the four to five million people who live in the so-called Azad Kashmir. But the pro-independence um, segment is much weaker uh, elsewhere um, in the other sub-regions of the contested territory. Then, you know, we have a, a second, you know, political segment uh, who are pro-India, and this mainly consists of uh, Hindus, Sikhs, and Buddhists, you know, i.e. non-Muslims. You know, Kashmir is a, uh, is a multi-religious and multilingual territory, but it also includes, you know, some Muslims in Indian-administered Kashmir who identify with India and want to remain as uh, part of India. And this pro-India group, which is also you know, relatively significant in size, is concentrated uh, in the Jammu region of Indian administered Kashmir, particularly in its southern districts, which are predominantly populated by Hindus, and also in Ladakh, particularly in predominantly Buddhist eastern Ladakh, um, which abuts uh, 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 China. Uh, and uh, lastly, there is a third <laughs> political segment uh, to complicate the picture even further. Uh, this is definitely smaller, much smaller than the pro-independence segment, and probably smaller than the pro-India segment as well, but it's still sizable and not uh, insignificant in political terms. And this is the pro-Pakistan segment, um, which uh, people uh, who consider their national identity as Pakistani and want uh, Kashmir um, uh, to uh, be part of Pakistan. And this pro-Pakistan segment, of course, um, has a, a strong presence in Pakistan's so-called Azad of Free Kashmir, where the population seems to be vertically split between pro-independence and pro-Pakistan views. But the pro-Pakistan segment always has had and still has uh, a foothold in Indian administered Kashmir as well, particularly in the Kashmir Valley. So the great challenge, to sum up, uh, Nicholas, is not just to uh, somehow reconcile uh, the competing and zero-sum ideological claims of uh, India and Pakistan to Kashmir, but also to somehow reconcile um, the fundamentally different and, on the face of it, incompatible political allegiances and preferences within Indian Kashmir. Um, the three fundamental different and incompatible political allegiances, uh, pro-independence or independentist, pro-India and pro-Pakistan. Um, can it be done? 
yes, um, it can be done. Um, it's been over 20 years now that I have uh, been um, arguing for uh, a Kashmir settlement, which is based on a non-zero-sum compromise, uh, adapted uh, in part from uh, the approach and the architecture of the peace settlement in Northern Ireland. Um, I think it would be an excellent um, you know, settlement <laughs> in principle, and many people uh, do agree, but these are the sensible and rational people. And uh, as you can imagine from what we've discussed today, uh, the political odds uh, don't look good at all um, for that sort of outcome for now and for the near future at least. Uh, I'm in fact fearful that at some point, um, I can't predict the exact timing, but at some point in the near future, definitely within the next few years, there will be uh, a major escalation of the dangerously festering Kashmir conflict. And it's going to get worse before it hopefully gets better. But at the end of the day, uh, I believe, and a lot of people do agree with me, people uh, with knowledge of the conflict and its realities, that A, there is no settlement to the conflict except through diplomacy and statecraft. Uh, repression, you know, just uh, will not work. And war will not work either, you know. Uh, either repression or war will not work. It would have worked by now, <laughs> um, you know, had that been the case. And secondly, it's in the supreme interests of both India and Pakistan to, at some point in the future, lay this conflict to rest through a compromise derived from diplomacy and statecraft. You know, otherwise, the Kashmir conflict is festering very dangerously in an extremely volatile regional neighborhood where you have Afghanistan, you have China, and various other players uh, involved. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Sumantra Bose, author of Kashmir at the Crossroads, Inside a 21st Century Conflict. Sumantra, I actually have two more final questions. Mm -hmm. Where can people find your work and what's next for you? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, uh, you mean where can they find the book? Uh, or uh, well, either uh, either the book or your work in general. Whatever you can choose how to answer uh, that question, however uh, you wish. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, well, um, uh, uh, right. You know, thank you for asking that question, uh, Nicholas. Um, you may have noticed that I'm not on social media, and that's uh, a, a deliberate uh, choice. Um, um, uh, and um, you know, I may be missing out in certain ways, but. Uh, um, it, it, is a, it is a deliberate choice. Um, I would uh, guide people who are interested uh, in learning about my work to uh, my website, uh, sumantrabose.com. So that's sumantrabose, my first and last names as one word, .com. It's easily discoverable, of course, sumantrabose.com. And that has uh, information about uh, my background, my career, um, and my work, including um, you know all of my books, uh, particularly uh, Kashmir at the Crossroads, uh, newly published 
by uh, Yale University Press globally and in an Indian edition by Pan Macmillan India from Delhi under the Picador India imprint. And you had a second question as well, right? Uh, oh, it was basically what's what's next for you? What, what's your next project? If you if if you know what that is right now, uh, right? Um, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm still in the aftermath of writing uh, this uh, Kashmir book, uh, and um, uh, I've been uh, a bit uh, more prolific over the last uh, two or so decades than I ever imagined I would be. In fact. Um, you know, I've <laughs> managed to publish uh, eight books in all. Kashmir at the Crossroads, Inside a 21st Century Conflict is my eighth book. So I think I'll be taking a, a, a bit of a break from, you know, heavy-duty writing for the foreseeable future. But um, I am sure I will stay otherwise engaged uh, through the media in particular uh, with, among other issues, the evolution of the Kashmir conflict which, as I said, is poised at a particularly dangerous juncture, I fear, as we speak. And um, I have other you know, long-term interests. For example, uh, I'm also a specialist uh, of the former Yugoslavia, in particular Bosnia-Herzegovina. I've worked extensively in and on post-war Bosnia-Herzegovina over the last quarter century, and I was just there for... Uh, quite a while in October uh, 2021, uh, interacting with academics, with young people, particularly university students, and with the local media. So, uh, and I live between um, between London and Calcutta, or Kolkata as it's called now. So, um, uh, once, uh, if and when, international travel you know, normalizes, I'm sure I'll go back to my old routine of a lot of uh, transcontinental and long-haul travel. So uh, I hope there'll be plenty to keep me busy in 2022, but I'll be taking uh, a short break, probably no more than a year or two, from heavy-duty writing uh, while I uh, rest on... Uh, well, not quite the laurels, but uh, uh, but something you know resembling that, hopefully, of Kashmir at the crossroads. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to ageofviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asia View Books podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Caroline Humphrey and Frank B.A., authors of On the Edge, Life Along the Russia-China Border. But before then, thank you so much, Sumantra, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Nicholas.